Hello, listeners, and welcome to Junk Dilemmas, an Irvin Welch podcast. Uh, my name is Damien Kiley. I am your host, um, and this is my debut episode. This is the maiden voyage, as it were, of Junk Dilemmas. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to clarify in advance. Uh, the views expressed in this podcast are purely mine. I'm not in any way affiliated with Mr. Irvin Welch. I'm just a big fan of his. And I will be discussing material of an adult and controversial nature that may offend some people. And thirdly, uh, I am an amateur, so I don't have a broadcasting degree. I'm uh, I'm no Joe Rogan, so bear with me. As a Fergal Sharkey once said, please be gentle with this heart of mine. But uh, what is Junk Dilemma as well? We're living in uh, 2020, which definitely has its pros and cons. And I suppose one of the pros is that uh, a little bit more free time at home. So I decided why not just start talking shite uh, about one of my favorite authors, collected works, that being Irvin Welch. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about all of his novels, his short story collections, uh, and the various adaptations of his work, including, of course, Trainspotting. So uh, let's get into it. Um, first up is, of course, Trainspotting. It's his debut. It's an amazing debut. I suppose that we need to discuss the backstory of the book and a little bit of the history of the man himself leading into the history of the book. So let's go for it. So yes, Urban Welch was born in 1958 in Leith in Edinburgh and his family moved to the area of Moorhouse where train spotting is set when he was about four. Neighbours at the time included ex-Man United player and current Scottish national team coach Gordon Strachan, uh, who reckons that he used to get into scraps uh, frequently with Irvin Welch's older brother. Um, and I can't help wondering how Gordon Strachan would fare in a one-on-one fight with uh, Mr. Francis Begbie. But uh, Welch himself, of course, is a big Hibs fan, uh, and that comes up a lot in the books. He left school, uh, which he wasn't particularly fond of when he was about 16, and he completed a City and Guilds course in electrical engineering and had some various jobs, including an apprentice TV repairman and working for the city council. He had an uncle who was coincidentally a train driver uh, who lived down in London. So Irvin would go up and down throughout his early years, uh, including a spell during the start of the punk scene in London. So he himself played guitar and sang badly by his own admission in bands with names such as the Pubic Lice and Stairway 13. The latter is a reference to the Ibrox disaster in 1971. Uh, Welch himself is a former heroin addict. He started taking it in his early 20s and he actually carried on working for the first year while he was using. Um, He says he enjoyed the romance of it all. He was listening to a lot of Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. He had one particular friend who he took heroin with and he admits that without each other they probably wouldn't have started taking heroin at all. And he's, he's mentioned that he thinks this is possibly the genesis of Renton and Sick Boy, which is interesting. Um, he thought he was ha- hiding his habit quite well and he didn't realise how deep he'd gotten in. Uh, but he's spoken about starting to notice almost a parallel world where, you know, he really started to notice the uh, drug addicts and alcoholics in the street as he started, you know, taking part in their activities. So he started writing at this time. He actually started writing small snippets of stories. Um, which at times were obviously pure nonsense, but at other times were quite funny and interesting. And it's possible that these read a bit like the Junk Dilemma chapters from the book that we're going to be discussing here today. 
he did get off heroin. It took him a couple of attempts, but he did get off it. Uh, he was involved in a bus crash around this time. He fell down the stairs of a bus while it was crashing, and he did get compensation money for that, which he used to get on the property ladder and so he could start concentrating more on writing and it kind of expanding on the stuff that he'd started while on heroin. So he started going to clubs at this time as well and discovered Acid House, which he really got into and felt he belonged in a part of. He's compared, you know, Acid House to the punk movement. But he, he actually started trying to write in uh, the Queen's English at the start for Trainspotting, but it obviously just didn't fit. Uh, he stated that he was kind of inspired by Acid House to try and write in what has become now his famous style of raw Scots dialect, which was to try and emulate the 4-4 beat of Acid House music and then kind of adding the effects of disjointed or varied fonts, you know, displaced words that are falling off the page or running into the next page with extra letters. Um, he wanted to produce the literary version of that style of music. And I think that becomes more evident in books like Marabout's Dark Nightmares and Ecstasy, but there's definitely elements of it in his early work like Trainspotting or The Acid House. So he's, he finished Trainspotting in 1991 and Clock Tower Press, a small publishing house ran by a fellow writer and a friend of his, Duncan McLean, they released extracts of it before it was finally published by Secker and Warburg in 1993. And Irvin Welch actually tells a funny story about receiving a phone call while he was on holiday with his wife and a posh Scottish accent told him that how much they loved his novel and wanted to publish it. And he thought it was a wind up. He thought it was one of his mates on the other end of the phone. But it was genuine and they got it published and it did become pretty much an underground hit at first. It was uh, very popular, obviously, with a younger generation and it was adapted into a play at the time. I think this would have been where Ewan Bremner, who went on to play Spud in the movie, did actually play Renton in the stage production at first. But uh, ironically enough, it was when The Acid House came out about six months later um, that things really took off. Welch had the stories for The Acid House written around the same time as he was writing for Trainspotting. Um, So it was released quite soon afterwards. And that became really popular with a certain demographic because of the name. And then people kind of backtracked and read Trainspotting. So uh, The Acid House did make Trainspotting more popular almost uh, and this obviously created a big buzz about Welch. So let's uh, talk about the general plot and structure. So the book essentially tells the story of uh, Mark Renton, a heroin addict in his early 20s, living in, also in Leith in Scotland. The plot is quite disjointed at times, as it's really done through various snapshots of his life, as told by him and several of his friends family and associates. Most chapters are small, some barely a page, like the Junk Dilemma chapters, uh, which are like inner monologues of Renton while he's heroin-induced, and is obviously where I'm getting the name for this podcast. There are 43 chapters in total, and 22 of them are narrated by Renton, so he is definitely the central figure, among others. And the timeline is from the late 80s to the early 1990s, and I'll try and be a bit more specific about that later on. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the book covers. So the one I'm reading at the moment is it was only published in 2013. It has just a skull on the front. It's almost reminiscent of, uh, you know, the skull from Hamlet. But the first uh, edition did have 
also two skulls on the front. It's got two guys, whether it's meant to be Renton and Sick Boy or Renton and Spud, but they've got skull faces and it's it's quite striking. It's almost like a horror novel, which I suppose in, in a lot of ways it is. Uh, I do remember another cover, which was the one that I first read. I, I'm one of the people who only read the book after seeing the film, I'm afraid. So the cover that I had was the famous uh, iconic picture of Ewan McGregor uh, standing with his arms folded, soaking wet, obviously having just emerged from the worst toilet in Scotland. So let's discuss the main characters. So obviously, yeah, the main character is definitely Mark Renton. Um, He's the anti-hero, if you like, of the novel. Mark Renton is a very interesting character. You know, he's very much the voice of reason at most times in the book. Um, most of the book is through his eyes, as I said. But, uh, you know, Mark Renton, he's he's a smart guy. He's definitely above average intelligence. You know, he's cert- got a certain amount of street smartness. Um, but he is quite misanthropic. And I think he's quite depressed as well. He's not, you know terribly happy with his current situation a lot of the times he's very much aware that he's doing nothing with his life for most of the book Um, and he kind of uses heroin use as a a means to give purpose to his life or at least he thinks it does I think he he probably thinks he's acting cool by taking it but uh, I think he definitely takes it for hedonistic purposes as well but as I say he's a smart guy he's quite manipulative when he wants to be he's very able to play a room He's quite able to, you know, get his own way at times, subtly or passively. Next up is Sick Boy. Uh, Sick Boy is, I suppose, Renton's best friend. Um, he shares a lot of Renton's cynical values, but even more so because he has much less of a conscience than Renton. He's called Sick Boy not because of anything to do with withdrawal, but because he's one sick cunt. And that's Urban Welch's words, not mine. Um, and as Renton describes him, he's lacking in moral fibre. Uh, but he does know a lot about Sean Connery. You know, he speaks to Sean Connery a lot, through a lot of the book. He he sees him as almost uh, an idol, but I think he secretly thinks he's better than Sean Connery. He just hasn't been discovered yet. But he loves re- winding up the other members of the group. Um, well, certainly Begbie from behind his back, but, you know, he loves winding them up he, to the fact that he's able to pick up women with ease. And he's also, he's always involved in some sort of a scam, but he kind of puts his... Uh, his popularity with women to a more sinister use later in the book when he becomes a pimp. Next up is Spud. Spud is definitely probably the most likable character in the group. Uh, he's a very unlucky character. He's very passive, quite fragile. He's kind of used and abused throughout the book, uh, but he's definitely accepted as, you know, leet true and true. So he's always there or thereabouts. But, uh, you know, he's quite grounded and he's quite he has quite pleasant views on life, you know, certainly in his love for animals, which some of his friends do not share. But, uh, you know, he just doesn't have to get up and go to, to change his life the way Renton eventually does. And last but definitely not least is uh, Begbie. You know, Begbie is a psychopath. He's a violent bully. He dictates his friends whenever he's around them. And, you know, he assaults people for absolutely no reason, viciously, including his, his poor girlfriend. Um, but ironically, he does provide some of the best comic relief in the book, just through his kind of caveman-like attitudes and actions. So that's the characters, and we'll discuss them, you know, as and when they come up in the book, as well as the minor characters. And uh, So next, I'm going to get into the actual book itself. Here's the breakdown. 
before I get into the breakdown of train spotting, I just want to mention another podcast that I'm involved with at times. Uh, if you're a fan of train spotting and other classic movies, then you might be a fan of classic UK TV as well, in which case you might love the Tales of the Unexpected podcast. If you remember the show, uh, hosts Chris and Rob are working their way through every episode, talking about the good, the bad, and the weird of Tales of the Unexpected, often veering off course to talk about many other subjects as well. Um, and as I say, from time to time, I am also a guest on the show. So check that out. Search for the Tales of the Unexpected podcast on all good podcast platforms. So the book is co- is uh, broken into different sections. The first section is called Kicking. And the first chapter is called The Skag Boys, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Mother Superior. So this is uh, narrated by Renton. And I think it's a very good first chapter to give you a kind of a snapshot of the daily grind that these characters as heroin addicts go through. So it kind of starts, the very first line uh, is, the sweat was lashing off a sick boy, he was trembling. So uh, obviously he's, you know, in dire need of some heroin, which is interesting that it's him that's the needy one, because later on throughout the book, and certainly in the film adaptation, he he gives the impression that he can kind of take or leave heroin. But uh, we can see here that he's very much a heroin addict and is in need of it at this time. So he's kind of trying to push Renton out the door of his flat to go and get a fix. Uh, But at the time, Renton is more uh, preoccupied with just watching a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, which is kind of questionable. But we do find out later in the book that he's kind of watching these films. Ironically, he, you know, while he's under the influence he finds them quite amusing, but in his own words, uh, when you're sober, they're unwatchable, but when you're off your face, they're unmissable. But uh, they do venture out and it is quite a venture for them to get across uh, to their drug dealer. You know, it's almost like a, an Arctic expedition, the kind of uh, how difficult it is from just for a basic journey, you know, in a taxi to get to their drug dealer. But they do get there uh, and their drug dealer is Swanee, a.k.a. Mother Superior. Uh, because of the length of his habit um, and once they enter Swanee's flat there's a certain dynamic you know straight away uh, Swanee's the one in control he's the one with the power because he's the one that has the drugs and he kind of uses that power and abuses it at the start he's kind of winding them up and he kind of has both sick boy and Renton on edge uh, he, he's there with his sidekick Raimi who seems a, a pretty happy-go-lucky character um, he's kind of his uh, actions in the novel are kind of given to Spud in the movie where he's kind of floating around almost half annoying everyone he does kiss sick boy on the mouth when they're both you know intoxicated uh, but he's not homosexual to my knowledge but um, yeah he's listening to Velvet Underground and you know he's kind of as I say a little bit annoying if not quite likable it's interesting you kind of see the selfishness that a drug addict goes through you know they've both sick boy and renton have no concern for each other they just want to get the fix for themselves you know as renton puts it there's nay friends in this game just associates and whereas a pisshead wants every cunt in the pub to get as wasted as he is a drug a junkie doesn't give a fuck um and as i say once they get sorted with their fix the mood is definitely lightened swanny you know uh, becomes more likable or at least more tolerable and the character Alison is there as well and Alison 
she of the very famous line that beats any meat injection that beats any fucking cock in the world but it's interesting seeing that Renton mentions the kind of change in Swanee over the years you know this was a likable guy years ago before he was on heroin he played football you know he even washed the, the kit for the players so it's kind of an early example of someone that's been you know changed for the worse by heroin and uh, they do discuss other characters, which are, you know, Goatsy, I think, is a character who doesn't come into the novel, but he is mentioned as having contracted HIV. And it actually leads to one of another kind of very memorable line, uh, both from the movie and the book, where Renton says it's easy to be philosophical when some other cunts got shite for blood. And obviously in the, the movie, that's in relation to Tommy. But uh, there's also a brief mention of uh Renton's on-off girlfriend, Kelly, uh, who Alison, you know, mentions has had an abortion and it doesn't really come up again in the book, but I suppose it's it's interesting to see that this was the choice that this girl came to, uh, maybe due to the fact that her boyfriend is a heroin addict. But uh, moving on to the next chapter then, which is the first of the junk dilemmas, it's number 63. These are all narrated by Renton and they're just very small snippets of uh, inner monologues by Renton when he is heroin induced and this one he's kind of remarking that you know he's comparing being high to an internal C and noting that you know it's more short-term C but long-term poison and you know he kind of uses the metaphor that when the tide rolls out nothing's left but the shite so it's kind of a good description of uh how your body is left after taking heroin and he's obviously fully aware of this but he still carries on taking it nonetheless he's powerless to stop it at this time uh, the next chapter is the full day the first day of the edinburgh festival again it's narrated by renton and it is renton uh, trying to get off heroin and um, so he's you know locked himself in his flat he's got all his supplies his uh he's a vegetarian so he's got you know copious amounts of tins of vegetable and tomato soup uh, he's got some reading material, including some pornography, uh, but he realizes that he needs one last hit. So he obviously can't get a hold of his first choice drug dealer, who would be Swanee. He can't get a hold of who I think is probably a second choice, which is Seeker, who comes up again throughout the books. Um, and last, but you know, his least choice would be Mikey Forrester, who he uh, has no other uh, option but to go and visit. So uh, Mikey Forrester, of course, famously played in the movie by Irvin Welch himself. And I see a description here of Mikey Forrester as tin-bodied and almost bald at 25. So I have to say that's pretty good casting by Danny Boyle for the movie. You know, Mikey Forrester's flash. Again, we see this kind of power dynamic where he's the one with the drug. So he's kind of in control and he's using that to pull his weight around. And, you know, I think he has a disliking for Renton from previous encounters. Renton uh, apparently did have uh, brief sexual relations with a girl that uh, Mikey Forrester fancied, but, was, you know, never got there himself. So he, resent, he resents Renton for this. But uh, there's two other characters in Mikey Forrester's flat who don't seem very likable at all. There's a, a chap who apparently has had a stretch in prison. And Renton it notices that his fashion sense is a bit kind of caught in a moment in time. It looks like he's he was put in prison maybe in the late 70s and has only recently gotten out because he's wearing flare trousers. And uh, Renton refers to him as Mr. Fashion, a.k.a. Johnny Salton. 
Uh, but yeah, the other person is, I suppose, best described as a very rude woman. You know, she's certainly partaken in uh, this kind of piss taking of renting that's going on by Mikey Forrester. She's uh, wearing a, a leg cast, which uh, either herself or somebody else has graffitied with a, an arrow pointing up to her groin area. And it says, insert cock here. So uh, you kind of get an idea of the type of people that he's he's entered into a world with here. But um, yeah, Mikey Forrester doesn't actually have any heroin. He's only got opium, which uh, Renton obviously is disgusted with at first. But Mikey Forrester assures him that this is something that'll help him, you know, get off uh, his uh, heroin addiction gradually. So Renton takes the drug, uh, you know, it's a suppository and off he trots. But unfortunately, he also gets a dose of the trots soon afterwards and has to run to the nearest toilet, which happens to be the worst toilet in Scotland. It's situated at the back of a bookies. And it's so bad that a couple of the patrons from the bookies won't even enter the actual toilet. They're just pissing in the door of the toilet. There's about a, a foot of water on the floor. This is like the, the room from the movie Saw, only 10 times worse. But Renton has no choice but to go in because he needs to do a number two, as it were. But, uh, it's a disgusting description, you know, he goes into the, the cubicle and he, Irvin Welch describes that there's a fly buzzing around Renton's head and Renton grabs this fly and, you know, starts to write, he squashes it against the wall and starts to write hibs in, in the fly's blood, which uh, I can kind of see why they didn't bother filming this for the movie. I can't see that as being something that it would look great for Irvin or for Ewan McGregor to be doing. But uh, interestingly enough, the, you know, he does basically shite the opium suppositories down the toilet and has to disgustingly fish them back out. There isn't a description of the kind of the image, the metaphor of him diving into the toilet, which then becomes a beautiful blue sea. Uh, you remember from the movie that was accompanied by the the brilliant music by Brian Eno. But um, that's you know something that was added by Danny Boyle for the movie. But uh, this is a very dis- disgusting description of, you know, the kind of lengths that a drug dealer, a drug addict, I should say, goes to you know, to get his fix, even if it is only an opium suppository. But uh, there's another horrible description here where uh, Renton's trousers, you know, he's pulled his trousers down, so they're, they drop to the floor. And Irvin Welsh describes it as uh, his jeans crumpled to the deck and started to greedingly absorb the urine, which, you know, was a horrible image. Next up is a chapter entitled In Overdrive, and this is narrated by Sick Boy. It's actually his only chapter uh, that's narrated by him personally. And it's an interesting one because I think it, it continues the emphasis on the relationship between himself and Sick Boy or Renton. So it's both of them in a park and, you know, Sick Boy spots a couple of uh, girls who he attempts to chat up. And I think he thinks that Renton is cramping his style. But um, it's interesting. You kind of really get an insight into the thinking of this man. You know, it, his first line of this chapter is, I do wish that my semen rectum chum, the rent boy, would stop slavering in my fucking ear. There's a set of VPLs, visible panty lines on the chicky in front of us. And all my concentration is required to ensure a thorough examination can be undertaken. So you really get an idea for the type of guy this, uh, this chap is. But as I said, I think, you know, he sees that Renton, uh, you know, 
is a smart guy and a sick boy kind of looks down at everyone in life, including Renton, but he begrudgingly accepts that Renton has got some things going for him, certainly in terms of intelligence. I think sick boy might be a bit more street smart than him, but uh, I think he, he resents Renton because of this. But, uh, you know, he obviously doesn't let on. But, you know, I think Renton has higher morals than sick boy and sick boy would see that as a weakness, you know, and his low morals certainly allow him to get ahead in life in terms of, you know, getting more girls possibly and certainly getting more money through scams. But um, I think in a way they both feel threatened by each other, but they do begrudgingly respect each other nonetheless. Next up is a chapter entitled Growing Up in Public, and it's the first uh, by a, a kind of minor character. It's a character called Nina who is Mark Renton's cousin. But um, it's it's a day in her life. It's just after her Uncle Andy has died and the, the wake is in her house. So Uncle Andy is up in a room upstairs and she's very much uh, kind of isolated from her family. She's the black sheep of her family for sure. Um, she does remark in thought that, you know, certain members of her extended family aren't there, including Mark Renton who she knows herself as a drug addict. So it's interesting that he he already has that reputation in his larger family and obviously in the area in general. But uh, it's basically just a funny little chapter. You know, she goes upstairs and she notices that her Uncle Andy is actually sweating profusely and she raises the alarm. She's, you know, there's a bit of a panic there where she's kind of shouting that he's still alive. And it's almost like a faulty tower scene where everyone's kind of running around. But um it turns out that they've just had Uncle Andy a bit too close to the radiator in the room, so that that's why he was sweating. But uh, it's it's not really connected to the general story, other than the fact that she is Mark Renton's cousin. But I suppose it does give us a little first look at the kind of larger universe in terms of Irvin Welch books, where minor characters come in and out of the novels at times and do have connections to the main characters. Next up is a chapter entitled Victory on New Year's Day, and this is also a chapter uh, narrated by a minor character. It's uh, Stevie, who is an acquaintance of Renton and his gang. And Stevie uh, is a bit on edge. First and foremost, he's at a party, a New Year's Eve party at Francis Begbie's house, which would have anyone on edge, I suppose. Um, You can only imagine uh, how unnerving it would be to be at a party at this man's house where you might get a bit intoxicated and let your guard down. But it turns out that Begbie is in pretty good spirits. Um, and an example of this is that uh, another character, uh, Second Prize, who we'll speak more about, uh, he's an alcoholic, but he's apparently pissed up the back of uh, Begbie's curtains and he doesn't get assaulted for it. So that's an indication that Begbie's really in the party spirit here for the New Year's Eve. But he is kind of half forcing everyone to sing and dance and take part in the festivities. But at the time, Stevie isn't really up for that because he's a bit worried about his girlfriend who he hasn't heard from. Uh, She's supposed to be coming up to meet him on a train, but he's not sure if she's coming at all. He's starting to get paranoid that she wants to break it up with him or that she's found somebody else. But uh, halfway through the party, he does get a phone call from her. And it's interesting, there's a subtle, again, little nod to the hold that Begbie has over his girlfriend here, where she goes to answer the phone and is shouted down by Begbie himself and kind of ordered out of the room. So there's subtle nods to that domestic violence throughout the book, you know, leading to a a not so subtle scene, which we will discuss. 
But uh, Stevie, he gets the call and it is from his girlfriend and it turns out that she is on her way up and professes her, her love for him. So all is right in the world suddenly for Stevie. And it's just a funny little uh, shift in terms of his view of things. You know, suddenly he's looking at life through rose tinted glasses and he goes back to the party and is is full of the joys of spring. You know, he even puts on a certain song which gets some moans from other people in the, the room. It's the Proclaimers, Sunshine on Leet. And, you know, I have to say, after listening to the song, I do think it somehow fits the mood of the of the book. You know, it's very melancholic. Obviously, geographically, it really fits being uh, talk a story about Leet. But, um, you know, I don't think it would have fit on the Trainspotting movie soundtrack. It's not really cool enough for that. But I do think it fits the book somehow. But uh, yeah, so that's Stevie. You know, the book does end with him going out to meet his girlfriend in, in the streets on his way to the train station, he does meet some Hearts fans and gets assaulted. But uh, he still has a smile on his face even after this. You know, he's just on his way to the train station and nothing's going to stop him from uh, being happy in the fact that he's meeting his girlfriend again. The next chapter is entitled It Goes Without Saying. Uh, This is arguably the toughest read in the book, or certainly one of them. It's uh, 66 pages in and a baby is dead. So... The baby is Baby Dawn. She's uh, Leslie's daughter. Uh, this is different to the movie. In the movie, it was Alison who had the baby. This is a real gut punch early on in, in the book where you get the feel that things are, you know, really do get real. And you're exposed to the horrors that can lead from such an addiction. So this is obviously a baby that's been uh, playing around in a drug den. And it's unclear whether it was a cot death or neglect or, you know. A mixture of both, perhaps, but uh, what, what's really possibly horrific is the reactions of some of the characters after it happens. Obviously, Leslie is totally distraught and screaming the, the flat down. This is happening in Swannies. But uh, one of the other characters, Matty, who we will speak about more, but Matty has definitely a very uh, sinister side to him, I would say. You know, he's a pessimistic character, but he, he just wants to get out of there. Now, he does have a criminal record and he's spent some time in prison, so he doesn't want to be caught in a place like this. Whereas Spud obviously wants to do the right thing and stay there, phone an ambulance and stay with Leslie. I suppose the most uh, eyebrow-raising reaction is from Renton himself, who, you know, just wants to go and cook up a shot. That's He sees that as the only uh, solution to the, the situation so, so he cooks up a shot and you know Leslie herself is begging him for for a shot but uh, he says of course he'll give her a shot after what she's just gone through but only after him it goes without saying and obviously the, the other noteworthy thing of the chapter is the fact that it looks like sick boy was the father of the child that this was not a known fact beforehand but the other characters kind of know from Sick Boy's reaction that he was the father. And, you know, if Sick Boy had a, a cynical view on life beforehand, he certainly does after this. Then we're into another Junk Dilemmas. Uh, it's number 64. And again, obviously, it's nar- narrated by Renton. So in this situation, Renton is in his own flat and he can hear his mother in the distance knocking on the door, begging him to, to let her in. Uh, but he ignores her, please. And he, he just cooks up another shot. So he's clearly feeling guilty about it. You know, he uh, but he again, he just is powerless to stop his addiction and kind of answer the door to her. And, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting looking at the image of this woman, this poor woman is only a few feet down a corridor on the other side of a door, but 
could be miles away in his eyes. You know, you kind of get a snapshot of a mother's pain here. Obviously, it's heartbreaking for parents to have children who are uh, led into drug addiction. But uh, this is, you know, a harsh reality. And it's one that, you know, Renton at the time is powerless to stop. But the other uh, thing to note in this is that he remarks that the the heroin isn't of great quality. And he wants to uh, seek out Seeker and take it up with him. Now, knowing what we lead, we find out about Seeker, he doesn't strike me as a character that is very approachable in customer service matters. But uh, I think this is possibly the start of what was a real situation in uh, in Scotland, where up until a certain point in the early 80s, there was uh, a very pure version of heroin on the streets known as China White. It, it actually it, it certainly didn't come from China. It actually came from down the road from an actual pharmaceutical factory. That was constantly robbed by the by the locals, but this ran out in the factory, you know, closed up. I think, and then they did start start getting um, a version of heroin known as Afghan Brown, which was not half as pure. And I imagine this led to a lot of customer service complaints in the area. Next up is a chapter entitled Her Man, and it is narrated by Second Prize, who I mentioned. So Second Prize is an alcoholic. He, you know, he he doesn't take heroin. So he kind of has a certain group of friends who he, he meets up with for a pint, And that includes Tommy. And himself and Tommy are in a, a local pub and they witness uh, basically some domestic violence. You know, they notice a, a horrible character who comes up again. He's Alan Venters. He's in a, a much more sinister car, uh, chapter even than this later on in the book. But at this time, he is assaulting his girlfriend, you know, in in public, in full view of other people. Um, what's interesting, first of all, is that the locals in the pub don't seem to pay any attention to it. You know, they, they just accept this as part and parcel of life in the area. But Tommy is taking exception to it. And Sick Boy himself uh, is beside a guy who's at the bar who remarks, you know, just the lover's tiff and laughs it off which is disgusting in itself. But um, it's interesting, the description of the, of Alan Venters, who's committing the assault, is that he's got greasy black hair, and a tin white face with a black moustache, a wee ferret-faced fucker. And I have to say, based on that description, I, I thought that if they had included this scene in the movie, which, you know, for possibly obvious reasons, they didn't. But if they had, then Major would have been a good uh, casting choice. But uh, as I say, Tommy takes exception to this assault and gets involved. But uh, ironically, the woman turns on Tommy. You know, she starts shouting, you know, that's my man. That's my man. And uh, after Tommy is assaulted, Alan Venters, she jumps on Tommy and starts scraping his face. You know, it's interesting that with this woman, we don't know what her thinking is. Is Is she so damaged by the situation with her boyfriend that she's reacting like this? Or is she... Is she just, you know, a bit of an asshole herself? But it's obviously a horrible situation. And then uh, the guy who was joking at the bar, he gets a thump from Second Prize as well. You know, who remarks, you know, you thought it was all a big joke to you. But uh, they get out of there. It's interesting that the locals in the bar take exception to them starting to fight with Alan Venters. And kind of, uh, you know, they don't like to see this in the pub. They were happy enough with the, the assault on the woman. But once it breaks into a fully fledged fight they're kind of getting involved there's there's darts players in the pub who kind of tell tommy and sick boy to get out and second prize does remark them when they're on the bus afterwards that you know he himself has been in situations with his girlfriend 
uh, Carol, where he hasn't assaulted her, but he has, you know, held her arm and restrained her, you know, in the room so that they can continue an argument. And, you know, he sees this as a gray area. But I, I think Tommy doesn't see it like that at all. He sees it for what it is. It's a clear example of of assault in itself. But as I say, it's interesting to see the little subgroups that there is within the larger group. Tommy and, and Second Prize don't take heroin, or Tommy doesn't at this time anyway. So they're, you know, out on a, just a, a piss up. And I, I think one of the other few characters that they would have as a choice for, for just a straight piss up would be Begbie, which is obviously a poor choice to have. Next up is a chapter entitled Speedy Recruitment. And this is narrated by both Renton and Spud. So it's obviously a very famous uh, scene from the movie. But uh, as the the movie scene starts out with them in a cafe, jointly sucking on a a milkshake with two straws uh, for the book. They're actually in a pub and they're supping on pints of Guinness. They've both been uh, sent by the Dole office for an interview. And obviously it's, as Renton says, it's a bit of a tightrope where they have to look like they're trying to get the job but they obviously can't try too hard or they, they'll actually might actually get the job so it's a funny chapter where Renton himself goes for the technique of being overqualified you know and basically lying about the school he went to but he almost gets caught out by the interviewer who you know went to this school himself and remarks so old father I'm still doing the rounds so you know Renton is caught out and he has to really resort to just coming clean where he remarks that, uh, you know, he's asked, can you explain the gaps in your employment? And he says, well, yes, I can. I have a long-standing problem with heroin addiction. There is a, a deleted scene available on DVD where Renton is at his interview and Ewan McGregor is hilarious in it, but it's not included in the final cut of the movie. But uh, And obviously Spud's interview is hilarious as well. Some of his outbursts, you know, he's just rambling because they've both taken speed beforehand. So it really makes it look like they're trying, but obviously gives the impression that they're totally unsuitable for the interview or for the job. So we're into section two, which is entitled Relapsing. And the first chapter is entitled Scotland Takes Drugs in Psychic Defence. This is narrated by Tommy. So Tommy is on his way to an Iggy Pop concert, which happens to clash with his girlfriend's birthday. So Tommy has made the choice of buying a ticket for Iggy Pop and obviously has to... uh, go through with going to the concert but he, he sacrificed buying his girlfriend a present or bringing her out on the night because of this and he's going to the concert with a character called Davy Mitchell I just find it hilarious because I just pictured David Mitchell the uh, panelist and star of the comedy show Peep Show and just makes his scenes you know all the more hilarious at times but uh, it's interesting Tommy as I say, has sacrificed his girlfriend's birthday to go to this concert. It's remarked that Lizzie fancied going to the pictures to see the film The Accused. So uh, having looked that up, that was released in the UK in February of 1989. So we can kind of put a date on what's happening at this time in the book. There's a small section where Tommy goes around to Renton and sees if he, you know, wants to go to the concert, but Renton is heading off to London the next day. And Tommy remarks that Renton is part of a, a dole scheme down in London where he's going down to various locations and collecting different dole checks. And he picked up, you know, he got involved in the syndicate for this scam when he was working on a channel cross channel ferry. This ferry is mentioned more in the prequel book Skag Boys. But uh, it's interesting when he goes around to rent and he's watching another questionable movie choice. It's a Chuck Norris film. 
But um, you know, there's also mention of a character, Gav Temperley here, who's uh, moved into the, the flat. And ironically for Gav, he's almost the odd one out here because he's the only person working. And ironically, it's in the Dole office. So you can only imagine the heartache that Gav Temperley suffers from uh, being approached by the other guys, thinking up scams to uh, get around the Dole. But Tommy goes to the concert and, you know, it's it reads like the prodigy video for Smack My Bitch Up, where he gets progressively more drunk and off his face from taking speed. He gets into an argument with uh, Mitch, David Mitchell, over money, I think, and has a little scrap with him. And again, it's just a funny image of Tommy from the film uh, fighting with Davey Mitchell, uh, a.k.a. Mark from Peep Show. But, um, you know, he gets separated from him and makes his way into the concert and gets pushes his way up to the front and sees the man himself, Iggy Pop. And there's one section where Iggy Pop is singing, but changes the lyrics to the song to America from America takes drugs in psychic defense to Scotland take drugs in psychic defense. And Tommy remarks that he couldn't have defined us more accurately in a single sentence. But there's a funny section where he thinks Iggy Pop is looking at him while he's singing. And this reminded me of a section in the Bret Easton Ellis book, American Psycho, where Patrick Bateman goes to a U2 concert and feels that Bono is also looking at him uh, during the concert and feels a psychic connection almost with him. And I always found that funny because I would have liked them to have met up with Bono afterwards and and uh, murdered him. <laughs> the next chapter is a very very famous one, certainly in the, the movie version as well. It's entitled The Glass, and it is narrated by Renton. And I suppose it concentrates on his friendship, in inverted commas, with Begbie. Uh, in the movie, there's a lot more characters involved, but in the book, it's just essentially a double date between uh, Begbie, Renton, and their girlfriends, or at least Begbie's girlfriend, Judy. But uh, Renton is bringing along uh, his kind of ex-girlfriend, Hazel, who, you know, they kind of have a, almost a marriage of convenience. It's remarked that Hazel was abused um, as a child by her father. So she's, you know, obviously not, they're not together for sexual reasons, essentially. And Renton at the time is, you know, on uh, heroin. So he's not really up for, he doesn't have much of a libido either. But they go out on this essentially a double date. They're on their way to a party and stop off for a few drinks in a pub. And while they're in there, there's some rowdy individuals at the bar, some nut jobs. And, uh, you know, this just kind of lights a spark in Begbie. So Renton is uh, going down for some points and trying his best to, you know, stay away from these characters and avoid eye contact. But Begbie just is having none of it and gets involved. And, you know, he just causes holy murder in the pub. But essentially the date involves, you know, Renton massaging Begbie's ego. You know, it, Begbie has this opinion of himself. And it's interesting that Renton remarks on some of the kind of myths and realities regarding Begbie. You know, myth, Begbie has a great sense of humor. Reality, Begbie's sense of humor is solely activated by the misfortunes, setbacks and weaknesses of others, usually his friends. You know, Mitt Begbie is a hard man. Reality, I would not personally rate Begbie that highly in a square go without his assortment of Stanley Knives, baseball bats, knuckle dusters, beer glasses and sharpened knitting needles, etc. 
And it's it, renting those remark that Tommy once gave Begbie a pretty good run for his money in, in a row, but Begbie did get the better of him in the end. But uh, it, it's interesting that Begbie does compliment Renton himself. There does seem to be a small bit of affection there, which does come up at times. And Begbie is also affectionate towards Spud later in the, in the book as well. You know, it's interesting, Begbie remarks, see this cunt here talking about Renton. You know, style, he says, he says, a useless bastard, but he's got style, a man of wit, a man of class, a man not unlike my good self. So, you know, it's interesting that he, he always turns it back on himself and kind of bigs himself up. And it's also remarked that out of all the group, Begbie and Renton actually know each other the longest. You know, it, poor Renton was put sitting beside Begbie on the first day of school and was stuck with him all through primary school and into secondary school. And he actually did. He, he made himself do better in school work in secondary school just so he could move away from Begbie into a better class. But of course, it, it ended up not mattering at all because Begbie got thrown out of school early on. But even when he was in Telford College, uh, Renton was taking part in a course and went into the canteen to enjoy his chips. And there was Begbie sitting with a couple of other psychos. And they were taking part in a specialist course in metalwork for problem teenagers. But uh, Renton thinks that he, all it did was teach them how to make uh, more effective weapons. But even when Renton... Uh, Finally went on to Aberdeen College. He half expected to walk into the, the rag ball and see Begbie panelling some uh, poor bloke on the dance floor. But as I say, all hell breaks out in this row and Renton or Begbie throws a glass, which hits a bloke and uh, then goes down and, you know, starts shouting the odds and trying to find out who actually threw the glass like a psychotic Miss Marple. It's interesting that there's temporary alliances formed in this fight. You know, there's a chap who Renton remarks, calls him double body because of what he was drinking. And he uh, becomes Begbie's accomplice in slaughter. But then at the end of the row, he's kind of patting Begbie on the back and saying nice work. And Begbie just smiles at him and then promptly kicks him in the privates. He then starts beating on the guy and accusing him of assaulting his brother, which obviously this guy never did. He's just picking a reason out of the sky to assault him as well uh, but you know Begbie doesn't re- need a reason to assault anyone Irvin Welch's writing he kind of turns this violent scene into almost a comedy sketch which is a great uh, skill the next chapter is entitled A Disappointment and it's narrated by Begbie himself and it's kind of a small continuation of the theme of the last chapter so he's recalling a story uh, of being in a pub and kind of playing a game of pool or at least witnessing a game of pool and some guys came in and started trying to push their way onto the pool table but you know Begbie stared them down and the guy backed off and Begbie's actually resenting the guy for not kind of manning up and squaring up to him you know he kind of exaggerates the story in itself and it's possibly not the story in its full capacity it's slightly different to the, the story he tells in the movie, which obviously was was very much an exaggerated version as well. And the next chapter is entitled Cock Problems, and this is narrated by Renton again. So at this point, Tommy has been dumped by his girlfriend and pops around to Renton's flat and basically says that he wants to take up heroin. You know, so it's interesting when he calls in, it's the chapter's called Cock Problems because Renton is actually injecting his penis with heroin, which is slightly different to the movie where it's we see an image of Swanee being injected by Allison. The other interesting difference is that there's there's no videotape 
in the book, in the, obviously in the movie, which we'll get to. There was a videotape, a sex tape of Tommy and Lizzie, which Renton got his hands on. And this caused Lizzie to break up with Tommy. But in the book, she's just broken up with him more or less for the Iggy Pop ticket fiasco. And also just smaller instances after, you know, before that. It's interesting that Renton remarks on what a good catch Lizzie was for Tommy. You know, she was such a good catch that not even Sick Boy had had, uh, been with her. And he remembers a story back in school where himself, Begbie and another guy called Gary McVie had been basically perving on Lizzie from the the sidelines of a running track where she was taking part in a race. Uh, Incidentally, in the race, she was just beaten. Uh, to second place by the lanky strides of a character known as Big Morag Jamrag Henderson. So just a a small minor character with a hilarious name there by Irvin Welch. As I say, they were apparently watching Lizzie from from the sidelines and at some point Begbie got a bit too excited and started uh, simulating having sex with Lizzie when he actually burrowed a hole in the ground of the field and started basically having sex with that and moaning, which, you know, it's funny at the time he was laughing along with Renton and this other guy. It hadn't reached the point where Renton was really scared of Begbie. So he was kind of laughing at him as well as laughing along with him. But uh, it did get a bit sinister at the end where after Begbie apparently ejaculated into this hole in the ground, he grabbed this guy, Gary, and rubbed his face in it. So that's obviously early signs of psychotic behavior by Begbie but yeah um, Renton reluctantly gives Tommy some of uh, his heroin you know Tommy has the has the readies has money to pay for it so Renton gives in and gives it to him but he's very cautious of doing this he doesn't want Tommy to get you know addicted to heroin but it, it becomes apparent quite immediately that Tommy you know is gonna be someone that does become addicted to it as probably most people will be but he tries to put Tommy off by you know saying to him you know you've done it all mate now you've done dope acid speed ease mushies you know knock it on the head you've done it all make it the first and last time but unfortunately we learned that this is very much not the last time that tommy takes heroin the next chapter is entitled traditional sunday breakfast it's a hilarious one it's narrated by davy mitchell which again makes it hilarious for me because i'm picturing david mitchell the star of peep show but uh a difference to the movie, you know, in the movie, this is Spud that it happens to. But uh, in the book, it's Davy Mitchell and he's woken up in a strange flat. It is his girlfriend's mother's house. But uh, unfortunately for him, he's woken up in a puddle of urine, vomit and feces after a night of heavy drinking. You know, and the other thing he remarks on that the night hadn't gone terribly well anyway, because his girlfriend is starving him of sex at the moment. She's she's read it in Cosmopolitan. She wants to... Uh, prolong it so that it means more when they do finally you know have sex so he's remarking that you know probably amongst the all these bodily fluids is some uh, some of his semen as well it's a disgusting scene but it becomes hilarious when he goes downstairs with the dirty sheets and he's you know he's been invited for breakfast and it's interesting the the family don't seem bothered when he proclaims that he's dirty the sheets you know this happens to the best of us as the father of the house says you know it does a, a man good to cut loose once in a while as i say he, he starts fighting with the mother over the sheets they're both pulling at the sheets and they eventually get flung the contents get flung all over everyone that's sitting at the breakfast table so it's a funny ending to the chapter where Davy Mitchell remarks that I can't see my relationship with his girlfriend going any further now. 
Next up is another junk dilemmas. It's number 65, again, narrated by Renton. Renton is lying in his flat in a heroin-induced daze with somebody else, but he can't completely make out who it is. He thinks it's Spud. It's a darkened room and he, he doesn't have the energy to, you know, turn on a light and find out who it is. But he thinks at one point that Spud might be dead. But again, it's just, you know, a harsh insight into the situation that could arise when you're just heroin-induced, where somebody could be lying beside you dead and you are powerless to do anything about it. The next chapter is entitled Grieving and Mourning in Port Sunshine. And it's a third person narration by Billy, uh, who's Renton's brother. So he is has been at uh, card games with his friends Lenny, Naz, Pesbo and Jackie. And they're waiting for another friend, Granty, who hasn't turned up on time. So they have been playing card games and they've been using their actual football club's money as as the pot just to make the games seem more realistic. But Granty had been holding the money and it actually turns out that Granty has died. You know, they're worried as to the whereabouts of the money after this. One of the characters, Lenny, goes to the pub where he finds out that Granty has died. But uh, there's a funny remark here where Lenny says that he smokes far too many fags, but he has tried to cut down by staying in bed longer. He generally doesn't get out of bed until 2 p.m. This this reminded me of uh, a story you heard years ago about Gaza, where one of his diets was that whenever he got hungry, he just went to sleep. But um, Lenny is in the pub and he gets really drunk and is grieving over his friend Granty. And he actually spots Spud, Tommy and Second Prize over the far side of the pub and starts resenting them. You know, he's shouting at them, saying that they're just junkies, mates of Billy's brother. You know, why Why are they allowed to stay alive when decent guys like Granty, who valued life, uh, has died? You know, his friend tries to talk him down and says, you know, they're, they're OK, they're sound lads. But then Lenny, conceding the point, then turns his attentions to OAPs on the other side of the bar, saying, oh, look at these old fuckers. They should be dead as well. It's interesting seeing how different Billy Renton is to his brother, Mark. You know, he's on the surface, a more clean cut guy. Now, Billy's doesn't seem to be a nice guy either but you know he's had a stretch in the army he's certainly not addicted to heroin so he's probably in the eyes of a lot of people in the community um, a, a more decent guy than Mark Renton himself. They do find out that one of the characters Jackie has actually been secretly seeing Granty's uh, girlfriend so Jackie and Granty's girlfriend are trying to uh, head off on holiday with this club money but the, the other guys cop on to what's going on and they stop around to Jackie's flat and I like the, the line an unspoken contract was forged between them in a split second and then Jackie screams reverberated around the stairwell as they booted and dragged him from landing to landing so again it's just a small chapter which isn't uh, immediately related to Mark Renton's general story but it does give you an insight into his brother Billy and just the goings on in life around the area. And I do also love the line early on in the chapter where they're kind of thinking about the uh, unspoken possibility of one of them robbing the, the, the kitty money, the the soccer club money. And they say uh, not, they all had ties in the area and could never leave for good, not just for 2,000 uh, quid. Leaving the area was what it would mean if one ripped off the rest. So, And of course, that is foreshadowing for what uh, Billy's own brother, Mark Renton, does later on in the book. So we're into section three now, kicking again. And the first chapter is entitled Inner Shitty. And it's actually narrated by Begbie. 
and it's it's uh, basically Begbie and Renton on a train journey down to London. They've committed some unknown crime and they've decided to lay low in London for a while. So, um, you know, it's narrated by Begbie and it has some great comic relief in it, but uh, also starts off quite horribly. Begbie uh, horrifically assaults his pregnant partner, June, uh, at his house, at his flat. And, you know, it's it's a horrible scene. It's brief, but, you know, it's horrific in the sense that he commits this assault and then just heads out and, you know, doesn't really give it a second thought. The only thought he gives it is that, you know, if she has hurt the barn, if she's hurt the baby, then she's in trouble. You know, he's basically blaming her for getting him angry enough to, to kick her in the stomach, which is what he does to a pregnant woman. But uh, as I say, all is forgotten when he meets up at Renton, they get a load of drink in uh, for the train journey down to London. And it's interesting, again, we see the kind of relationship between Renton and Begbie, which, you know, goes back right to our early childhood. Begbie is kind of affectionate again towards Renton. You know, he's paying him, playing him compliments here. There's a section here where he speaks about, uh, you know, himself and Renton. He says, me and Rents go back a long fucking way, but it's like the cunt's changed. And I'm not just talking about the drugs and that shite. It's like he's got his ways and I've got mine. Still a great cunt, though, the red-headed bastard. Problem with the red-headed cunt is that he's not got the gift of the gab as far as birds go. He hasn't got a certain style, not like, say, me and sick boy. So Begbie sees himself as a serious ladies' man, uh, even to the point, you know, where he's comparing himself to sick boy. And, you know, I think Begbie, I mean, he'd, he'd definitely rip Renton off, you know, if he had to. He'd even kill him if he really had to. Uh, but when he's in normal mode, uh, as normal as he can be, I think uh, Renton is the closest thing Begbie has to a friend, which makes the ending of the book even more uh, ironic. But uh, they're on the train and they sit beside a couple of uh, girls who I think Begbie thinks they're American, but they are actually Canadian. And uh, one of them remarks that they're from Toronto. And Begbie jokes, oh, wasn't that the Lone Ranger's mate? But uh, this is an example of him, you know, having the gift of the gab with, with ladies as opposed to Renton. Uh, and Renton does actually strike up a bit of a conversation with one of the girls, I think, over uh, reading a certain book. Uh, and Begbie is disgusted by this. He's disgusted when Renton takes out a book at some point and starts reading it on the train journey. He, he cannot understand that at all. He finds it rude and doesn't see the point of reading books. You know, you can get all you need from uh, reading, you know, the Daily Sun or, or something like that. If it was up to Begbie, he says he'd burn all books. So he's, you know, unwittingly taking part in an age old censorship uh, custom there. There's some funny bits, you know, He it's remarked early on that Renton has forgotten to bring the cards. And, you know, this is the last thing that Begbie reminded him of was to bring the fucking cards. And obviously this is slightly different to the movie where that happens very late on in the movie on the bus ride down to London for the drug deal. And it's actually Sick Boy who's forgotten the cards. But uh, Renton's forgotten them here and Begbie wants to get them back. But uh, before that, uh, they have an incident where they're sitting in pre-booked seats and the actual owners of the pre-book seats get on at a certain point and, and take it up with them. And we see Renton's kind of diplomatic approach initially where he's trying to talk nicely to them. You know, he suggests that you they pursue their complaint with a member of the, the British Rail staff. And my, my friend and I took these seats in good faith. I'm afraid we can't be held responsible for any errors made by British Rail. 
uh, but he's kind of saying it smirkingly. Uh, unfortunately, these two people uh, persist with their insistence that, that, you know, it's their seats and at which point Begbie has to speak up. And uh, needless to say, he doesn't have as much of a subtle approach to dealing with these people as Renton did. He remarks, I was I was too busy for a while enjoying Renton's performance to tell these cunts to fuck off. But eventually I says, hey, you, you lippy cunt. You heard what the gadge says on your fucking bike, you specky raj. Come on, move it. So uh, those people are sent on their way quick smart after that. He, it, the chapter ends then with Renton going to the toilet and Begbie decides to get his revenge for not for uh, Renton forgetting the cards and actually pisses in Renton's beer in the, the draft pack that he's bought. And there's also uh, an instant when they get off the train where there's a chap begging and Renton, I think, is, is searching his pockets to help him out. But uh, Begbie's having none of it and knocks the change out of his hands and enjoys the the homeless guy scrambling on the ground looking for the coins. So you see, again, um, a minor example of Begbie's nasty side where he, at rare times, can also be generous. The next chapter is entitled uh, Nana and Other Nazis and it's narrated by Spud. It's his first chapter and it's he's also managed to kick heroin for a while and he's visiting his grandmother. Um, he bumps into one of his uncles, uh, Dodie, who's a, of mixed race. And he remembers a time where he went for a pint with the man and he was subjected to racial abuse in the pub. It's interesting, the chapter actually starts off with uh, Spud bumping into Begbie in town. And Begbie is with Lexo, who's a casual acquaintance of his but it's also another psycho and Spud remarks that, uh, you know, such alliances are unholy, which is true to say Begbie certainly seems to know a lot of other psychopaths and Lexo, I believe, turns up in later books as well. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, Begbie does actually give Spud 20 quid and when he says that he's completely skinned. So again, another example of him having a, a generous side at times. But the other interesting thing is the, uh, the pub that uh, Spud and his uncle go to where he's racially abused, uh, Davy Renton um, and Renton's dad are actually in there. I think it might be a, like a pub frequented by Protestants. But, uh, you know, they kind of help out a little bit and usher Spud and his uncle out the door after they've gotten a couple of slaps. Um, but it's just an example, I suppose, of... The racism that exists in the area and obviously exists around the world, but it's certainly one that um, a man of mixed race would have suffered badly at this uh, period of time. And the next chapter is entitled The First Shag in Ages, and it's third person narration um, and it involves Renton again kicking heroin and he's quite restless. He's His libido has returned, so he's anxious to try and hook up with a girl. And he's out with the other uh, Skag boys. They're in a, an establishment. I think in the movie it was called the, the Volcano Bar. But, um, you know, once again, Sick Boy is having no trouble picking up ladies and is rubbing it in on his colleagues. He says, you know, if you can get a Joe McBride in this place, you may as well call it a day. And he's actually in the company of uh, at least a couple of girls. And he's, you know, winding the guys up saying, oh, my ladies are returning. I'll have to leave you gentlemen to your sordid little activities. Uh, the working class is at play. So again, he's kind of looking down his nose at people that are basically, you know, his peers. And there's a funny section where Irvin Welch writes that Sick Boy never goes into any details about his sexual adventures. His discretion, however, is only observed in order to torment his less sexually prolific friends rather than as a mark of respect for the women he gets involved in. 
and Spud and Renton realise that tree in the bed scenes with rich tourists and cocaine are the preserve of sexual aristocrats like Sick Boy, whereas this shabby bar is more on their level. And Renton and Spud are even horrified to see that even Begbie has, has gotten off with a, with a woman. So I suppose Renton is, you know, he's off heroin again and he's slightly irritable. Um, himself and Spud are doing a lot of speed and it's probably making him think and say a lot of shite, but... Uh, he is, first of all, he doesn't like that Spud calls him cat boy, you know, which Spud kind of does with everyone. You know, Renton does not like cats. <laughs> they make him sick. And that comes across a lot in the book where, you know, he apparently doesn't like animals, which is strange for a vegetarian. But, um, you know, he's thinking a lot when he's off the heroin and he's actually realizing that while you're on it, you've, you haven't got a care in the world other than the heroin. Your only thing you're concerned with is getting your next fix. Whereas when you're off heroin, you have all the troubles of the world on your shoulders. He actually compares being on heroin to being in the army. You know, he says when you're on it, you've got no worries. Everything is catered for in one shot. When you're off it, you have to sort everything out in life. And uh, Spud and Renton are spending a lot of time together at the bar. But Renton does notice that sick boy has now spent his obligatory half hour boosting Begbie's ego. And Renton kind of is thinking about this. He reflects on the insanity of being a friend of a person that he obviously dislikes. But this was custom and practice. Begbie, like heroin, was a habit and it was also a dangerous one. But uh, they're also at the bar and to kind of make himself feel better, to boost his own confidence, Renton is pointing out the minor faults in women that he can't get anyway. There's a brief mention of Renton's appearance here. He certainly doesn't sound like he looks in the movie. Uh, He himself thinks that he looks, you know, styles himself on Ziggy Stardust, but he was put back a bit when some girl remarked that he looked like a young Alex McLeish. So uh, at some point uh, he has dyed his hair black and spiked it. I I just can't get a picture of him like this at all. But uh, we also learn at at a later point that Sick Boy does not look like he looked in the movie either. He's got a ponytail, which maybe was the, the style for certain high and mighty types in the late 80s. So Renton does uh, then become aware of Diane and the bar. Uh, it's a much longer conversation that he has with Diane. They start talking about simple minds of all things. He does eventually, you know, persuade her to let him go home with her. So back in the flash, <laughs> it's interesting. He's dyed his hair black, but he's worried about Diane seeing his ginger pubes. And there's a funny bit where he does actually start having sex with Diane and to try and prolong his own uh, stamina, he starts thinking about, you know, less sexy images. So he imagines that he's shagging Margaret Thatcher, Paul Daniels, Wallace Murcher and Jimmy Jimmy Savile. But, uh, you also see a less favourable side to him then after they've had sex where, you know, he, they've had unprotected sex and... He's not worried about the HIV risk from his end, even though he's, you know, a heroin addict and has been using needles. He's worried about it from her end. You know, the fact that she slept with him so easily. How many other people has she slept with? So he doesn't have a a very nice impression of her. You know, it's not a nice assumption uh, or certainly not a nice character trait for him at this point. But uh, it does come to light that she is, you know, 14 years of age and. He is mortified at this and is worried about, you know, the consequences. He certainly doesn't want to be seen out in public with her. Uh, I think in fairness to Welch, he doesn't play this out in a comedic way as much as perhaps it comes across in the movie. You know, it is underage sex, albeit accidental underage sex from Renton's point of view. Um, But, you know, it is implied that he does continue to sleep with Diane. So, again, it's not a great character trait for him to have. And another kind of nasty side to him that comes out is when he's actually talking to Diane's father over breakfast and it turns out that 
Diane's father has worked with uh, people that rent and knows. And Welch writes that they talked about Ralphie Gildsland and his brother Colin, who Renton found himself pleased to hear had committed suicide. So, you know, I think Renton goes beyond being misanthropic at times. The next chapter is entitled Strolling Through the Meadows and it's narrated by Spud. And it starts off, they're all in a pub together. Even Begbie is there. And it, I like the little remark that, that Spud makes describing the how busy the place is. He says, the pubs are dead busy, full of loco locals. And he also remarks that he thinks that Matty, ha, you know, possibly has depression, which is, you know, one of the few actual mentions of mental illness in the book, even though I think there's a lot of uh, undiagnosed uh, conditions in the book, heavily employed elsewhere, but there's no actual talk of it, which I suppose would have been commonplace back then and is only really now improving these days. You know, it's not something that lads talk about. I certainly don't think it would be a subject that you take up too much with the likes of uh, Begbie. And it's actually Begbie who, again, ha- you know, shows his sinister side. He says that they should go on a pub crawl and get some cunt in the bogs, which, you know, is commonplace for him. And he's obviously talking about, you know, assaulting and robbing somebody in the toilets. This does come up in the movie. I think it's quite a, a comically played out scene in the movie with the American tourist. But the way they're talking here, you know, you really see that Begbie has done people damage in the past. And some of the other guys have taken part in this, albeit not, you know, physically assaulting somebody to the level of actually stabbing them, which is what Begbie has done. But it does come up that Renton himself had stabbed somebody previously, Eck Wilson, at school. You know, they don't go into it in much detail at all, but it does appear that it was some incident where Renton lost his cool and actually stabbed a guy. But uh, the actual incident with the American tourist in the book, Spud remarks that Renton or Begbie really went mental on him. So it sounds like it was a horrible scene and Spud still shakes when he thinks about it. He actually mentions the, the guy's name, Richard Hauser of Iowa. So obviously this made the news and they, they found out the guy's name. That's how bad the, the incident was. And, you know, Spud does be shaken when he's out because he thinks that every time he sees somebody who looks like the guy, another tourist, that it's him. So it's obviously left a mark on him, if not, you know, on Begbie himself, which is doubtful. And Spud actually remarks that, you know, the beggar, dear old Franco, he raped us, like say, he raped us all that night. And uh, he's a wild, wild cat, the beggar boy. When Begbie suggests doing this again, the only person who's really up for it is Matty, you know, who again has a sinister side to him. And Spud remarks that he's never really liked Matty. You know, he, he thinks he's one fucked up punter. And Spud remarks that, you know, mates like to take the piss out of each other. But, you know, when Matty does it, there's a, a real maliciousness to it. He seems to really enjoy uh, putting somebody down. He doesn't like to see a gadge happy, as Spud puts it. But uh, Spud, Renton and Sickboy do actually get away from uh, Begbie and Matty at this point. And R- Renton actually spots a squirrel, which he tries to do damage to. Again, he has this nasty streak in him when it comes to animals. Uh, but Spud is quite distressed by this and disappointed in his friend. And I think Renton becomes ashamed about this and apologizes then. And, you know, you see the friendship between those two. But again, it's interesting that Renton has this nasty streak in him when it comes to animals. And that is it for episode one. We're about halfway through the book, so I'm going to leave it there for this episode. Uh, On the next episode, I'm going to finish off speaking about the chapters the remaining chapters, uh, I'm going to pick out some of my favourite uh, bits of writing from the book 
and my overall thoughts. So join me for that. Uh, if you want to know when that episode is out, you can follow uh, the Junk Dilemma social media accounts uh, on Facebook. It's just search for Junk Dilemmas, a Northern Welsh podcast. On Instagram, it's junk underscore dilemmas. And on Twitter, it's junk underscore dilemmas. So look out for them. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.